Section 9 of Geronimo's Story of His Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Geronimo's Story of His Life by Geronimo. Transcribed by S. M. Barrett and translated by Asa Deklugi. Section 9 the Old and the New, Part 2. Chapter 21. At the World's Fair. When I was first asked to attend the St. Louis World's Fair, I did not wish to go. Later, when I was told that I would receive good attention and protection, and that the President of the United States said it would be all right, I consented. I was kept by parties in charge of the Indian Department, who had obtained permission from the president. I stayed in this place for six months. I sold my photographs for 25 cents and was allowed to keep 10 cents of this for myself. I also wrote my name for 10, 15, or 25 cents, as the case might be, and kept all of that money. I often made as much as $2 a day, and when I returned I had plenty of money, more than I had ever owned before. Many people in St. Louis invited me to come to their homes, but my keeper always refused. Every Sunday, the president of the fair sent for me to go to a Wild West show. I took part in the roping contests before the audience. There were many other Indian tribes there, and strange people of whom I had never heard. When people first came to the World's Fair, they did nothing but parade up and down the streets. When they got tired of this, they would visit the shows. There were many strange things in these shows. The government sent guards with me when I went, and I was not allowed to go anywhere without them. In one of these shows, some strange men with red caps, Turks, had some peculiar swords, and they seemed to want to fight. Finally, their manager told them they might fight each other. They tried to hit each other over the head with these swords, and I expected both to be wounded, or perhaps killed, but neither one was harmed. They would be hard people to kill in a hand-to-hand -hand fight. In another show there was a strange-looking negro. The manager tied his hands fast, then tied him to a chair. He was securely tied, for I looked myself, and I did not think it was possible for him to get away. Then the manager told him to get loose. He twisted in his chair for a moment, and then stood up. The ropes were still tied, but he was free. I do not understand how this was done. It was certainly a miraculous power, because no man could have released himself by his own efforts. In another place, a man was on a platform speaking to the audience. They set a basket by the side of the platform, and covered it with red calico, then a woman came and got into the basket, and a man covered the basket again with the calico. Then the man who was speaking to the audience took a long sword and ran it through the basket, each way and then down through the cloth cover. I heard the sword cut through the woman's body, and the manager himself said she was dead. But when the cloth was lifted from the basket, she stepped out smiled and walked off the stage. I would like to know how she was so quickly healed, and why the wounds did not kill her. 
I have never considered bears very intelligent, except in their wild habits, but I had never before seen a white bear. In one of the shows a man had a white bear that was as intelligent as a man. He would do whatever he was told, carry a log on his shoulder, just as a man would, then, when he was told, would put it down again. He did many other things, and seemed to know exactly what his keeper said to him. I am sure that no grizzly bear could be trained to do these things. One time the guards took me into a little house that had four windows. When we were seated, the little house started to move along the ground. Then the guards called my attention to some curious things they had in their pockets. Finally they told me to look out, and when I did so I was scared, for our little house had gone high up in the air, and the people down in the fairgrounds looked no larger than ants. The men laughed at me for being scared. Then they gave me a glass to look through. I often had such glasses, which I took from dead officers after battles in Mexico and elsewhere, and I could see rivers, lakes, and mountains. But I had never been so high in the air, and I tried to look into the sky. There were no stars, and I could not look at the sun through this glass, because the brightness hurt my eyes. Finally I put the glass down, and as they were all laughing at me, I too began to laugh. Then they said, Get out, and when I looked we were on the street again. After we were safe on the land, I watched many of these little houses going up and coming down, but I cannot understand how they travel. They are very curious little houses. One day we went into another show, and as soon as we were in it, it changed into night. It was real night, for I could feel the damp air. Soon it began to thunder and the lightnings flashed. It was real lightning, too, for it struck just above our heads. I dodged and wanted to run away, but I could not tell which way to go in order to get out. The guards motioned me to keep still, and so I stayed. In front of us were some strange little people who came out on the platform. Then I looked up again, and the clouds were all gone, and I could see the stars shining. The little people on the platform did not seem in earnest about anything they did, so I only laughed at them. All the people around where we sat seemed to be laughing at me. We went into another place, and the manager took us into a little room that was made like a cage. Then everything around us seemed to be moving. Soon the air looked blue. Then there were black clouds moving with the wind. Pretty soon it was clear outside. Then we saw a few thin white clouds. Then the clouds grew thicker, and it rained and hailed with thunder and lightning. Then the thunder retreated, and a rainbow appeared in the distance. Then it became dark. The moon rose, and thousands of stars came out. Soon the sun came up, and we got out of the little room. This was a good show, but it was so strange and unnatural that I was glad to be on the streets again. We went into one place where they made glassware. I had always thought that these things were made by hand, but they are not. The man had a curious little instrument, and whenever he would blow through this into a little blaze, the glass would take any shape he wanted it to. I am not sure, but I think that if I had this kind of an instrument, 
I could make whatever I wished. There seems to be a charm about it, but I suppose it is very difficult to get these little instruments, or other people would have them. The people in this show were so anxious to buy the things the man made that they kept him so busy he could not sit down all day long. I bought many curious things in there and brought them home with me. At the end of one of the streets some people were getting into a clumsy canoe upon a kind of shelf and sliding down into the water. They seemed to enjoy it, but it looked too fierce for me. If one of these canoes had gotten out of its path, the people would have been sure to get hurt or killed. There were some little brown people at the fair that United States troops captured recently on some islands far away from here. They did not wear much clothing, and I think that they should not have been allowed to come to the fair. But they themselves did not seem to know any better. They had some little brass plates, and they tried to play music with these. But I did not think it was music. It was only a rattle. However, they danced to this noise and seemed to think they were giving a fine show. I do not know how true the report was, but I heard that the president sent them to the fair so that they could learn some manners, and when they went home, teach their people how to dress and how to behave. I am glad I went to the fair. I saw many interesting things and learned much of the white people. They are a very kind and peaceful people. During all the time I was at the fair, no one tried to harm me in any way. Had this been among the Mexicans, I am sure I should have been compelled to defend myself often. I wish all my people could have attended the fair. Chapter 22 Religion In our primitive worship, only our relations to Usen and the members of our tribe were considered as appertaining to our religious responsibilities. As to the future state, the teachings of our tribe were not specific. That is, we had no definite idea of our relations and surroundings in after life. We believe that there is a life after this one, but no one ever told me as to what part of man lived after death. I have seen many men die. I have seen many human bodies decayed, but I have never seen that part which is called the spirit. I do not know what it is, nor have I yet been able to understand that part of the Christian religion. We held that the discharge of one's duty would make his future life more pleasant, but whether that future life was worse than this life, or better, we did not know, and no one was able to tell us. We hoped that in the future life family and tribal relations would be resumed. In a way we believed this, but we did not know it. Once, when living in San Carlos Reservation, an Indian told me that while lying unconscious on the battlefield, he had actually been dead, and had passed into the spirit land. First he came to a mulberry tree, growing out from a cave in the ground. Before this cave a guard was stationed, but when he approached without fear, the guard let him pass. He descended into the cave, and a little way back, the path widened and terminated in a perpendicular rock many hundreds of feet wide and equal in height. There was not much light, but by peering directly beneath him, he discovered a pile of sand reaching from the depths below to within twenty feet of the top of the rock 
where he stood. Holding to a bush, he swung off from the edge of the rock and dropped into the sand, sliding rapidly down its steep side into the darkness. He landed in a narrow passage, running due westward through a canyon, which gradually grew lighter and lighter, until he could see as well as if it had been daylight. But there was no sun. Finally he came to a section of this passage that was wider for a short distance, and then, closing abruptly, continued in a narrow path. Just where this section narrowed, two huge serpents were coiled, and rearing their heads, hissed at him as he approached. But he showed no fear, and as soon as he came close to them, they withdrew quietly and let him pass. At the next place, where the passage opened into a wider section, were two grizzly bears prepared to attack him. But when he approached and spoke to them, they stood aside, and he passed unharmed. He continued to follow the narrow passage, and the third time it widened, and two mountain lions crouched in the way. But when he had approached them without fear, and had spoken to them, they also withdrew. He again entered the narrow passage. For some time he followed this, emerging into a fourth section beyond which he could see nothing. The further walls of this section were clashing together at regular intervals with tremendous sounds. But when he approached them they stood apart until he had passed. After this he seemed to be in a forest, and following the natural draws which led westward, soon came into a green valley where there were many Indians camped and plenty of game. He said that he saw and recognized many whom he had known in this life, and that he was sorry when he was brought back to consciousness. I told him if I knew this to be true, I would not want to live another day, but by some means, if by my own hands, I would die in order to enjoy these pleasures. I myself have lain unconscious on the battlefield, and while in that condition have had some strange thoughts or experiences, but they are very dim, and I cannot recall them well enough to relate them. Many Indians believe this warrior, and I cannot say that he did not tell the truth. I wish I knew that what he said is beyond question true, but perhaps it is as well that we are not certain. Since my life as a prisoner has begun, I have heard the teachings of the white man's religion, and in many respects believe it to be better than the religion of my fathers. However, I have always prayed, and I believe that the Almighty has always protected me. Believing that in a wise way it is good to go to church, and that associating with Christians would improve my character, I have adopted the Christian religion. I believe that the church has helped me much during the short time I have been a member. I am not ashamed to be a Christian, and I am glad to know that the President of the United States is a Christian, for without the help of the Almighty I do not think he could rightly judge in ruling so many people. I have advised all of my people who are not Christians to study that religion, because it seems to me the best religion in enabling one to live right. CHAPTER Twenty Three: HOPES FOR THE FUTURE I am thankful that the President of the United States has given me permission to tell my story. I hope that he and those in authority under him will read my story and judge 
whether my people have been rightly treated. There is a great question between the Apaches and the government. For twenty years we have been held prisoners of war under a treaty which was made with General Miles on the part of the United States government and myself as the representative of the Apaches. That treaty has not at all times been properly observed by the government although at the present time it is being more nearly fulfilled on their part than heretofore. In the treaty with General Miles, we agreed to go to a place outside of Arizona and learn to live as the white people do. I think that my people are now capable of living in accordance with the laws of the United States, and we would, of course, like to have the liberty to return to that land which is ours by divine right. We are reduced in numbers, and having learned how to cultivate the soil, would not require so much ground as was formerly necessary. We do not ask all of the land which the Almighty gave us in the beginning, but that we may have sufficient lands there to cultivate. What we do not need, we are glad for the white men to cultivate. We are now held on Comanche and Kiowa lands, which are not suited to our needs. These lands and this climate are suited to the Indians who originally inhabited this country, of course, but our people are decreasing in numbers here, and will continue to decrease unless they are allowed to return to their native land. Such a result is inevitable. There is no climate or soil which to my mind is equal to that of Arizona. We could have plenty of good cultivating land, plenty of grass, plenty of timber, and plenty of minerals in that land which the Almighty created for the Apaches. It is my land, my home, my father's land, to which I now ask to be allowed to return. I want to spend my last days there and be buried among those mountains. If this could be, I might die in peace, feeling that my people, placed in their native homes, would increase in numbers rather than diminish as at present, and that our name would not become extinct. I know that if my people were placed in that mountainous region lying around the headwaters of the Gila River, they would live in peace and act according to the will of the President. They would be prosperous and happy in tilling the soil and learning the civilization of the white men, whom they now respect. Could I but see this accomplished, I think I could forget all the wrongs that I have ever received, and die a contented and happy old man. But we can do nothing in this matter ourselves. We must wait until those in authority choose to act. If this cannot be done during my lifetime, if I must die in bondage, I hope that the remnant of the Apache tribe may, when I am gone, be granted the one privilege which they request, to return to Arizona. End of Section 9 End of Geronimo's Story of His Life by Geronimo Transcribed by S. M. Barrett and translated by Asa Deklugi